We'll hear argument now in number 895-1263, Caterpillar, Inc. versus James David Lewis. Uh, Mr. Geller. <clears throat> Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. May it please the Court. The Sixth Circuit reversed the judgment of the District Court in this case, not because of any error in the District Court proceedings, and not because the District Court lacked jurisdiction to try this case, but solely because the uh, district, the, the case was not within federal diversity jurisdiction at the time that the case was removed from state court. First, this ruling conflicts with prior decisions of this court and makes no sense from the standpoint of judicial economy. We've asked the court to grant review. Now, the facts that are necessary to understand the legal issue uh, are these. The plaintiff, James Lewis, uh, was injured while operating a bulldozer manufactured by Caterpillar and serviced by Wayne Supply Company. He brought suit in Kentucky State Court against Caterpillar and Wayne Supply, alleging a number of tort claims. Liberty Mutual Insurance Group, which had paid Lewis workers' compensation benefits, intervened as a plaintiff to uh, protect its subrogation rights and brought virtually identical tort claims against Caterpillar and Wayne Supply. Now, at the time the complaint was filed, the case was not removable to federal court because both plaintiff Lewis and defendant Wayne Supply were citizens of Kentucky, so there wasn't complete diversity of citizenship. Several months later, however, Caterpillar's counsel learned that Lewis had settled his claim with Wayne Supply, the non-diverse defendant, and Caterpillar thereupon removed the case to federal court in Kentucky. Lewis moved to remand the case, making the single argument that the district court lacked subject matter jurisdiction. Lewis he was right at that point, was he not, because Wayne was still in the litigation. So when the motion was made to remand to state court, there was not complete diversity, and the case should have been remanded. Is that not correct? That was obviously a disputed issue, but as the case comes to this court, that's correct. Well, I think we have to assume this. And he made a timely objection. He preserved his objection. He made a motion to remand. Yes. Yes, Justice O'Connor. And uh, I don't know if it's all that clear whether an interlocutory appeal would ever lie at that point. Is it? From the denial of the motion to remand, the Sixth Circuit and other circuits have allowed appeals in that circumstance. We don't rely heavily on that in this case, but there are many cases that have allowed appeals in, in that circumstance, including some cases in the Sixth Circuit that we cited in our, in our brief, but it would be a discretionary. But in any event, presumably, having made the objection and motion in a timely fashion, it should be reserved for review on appeal. Uh, if the error had not been cured, there, I think there would be a, an argument that the issue should be well, repealed. But, of course, the claim is that there was prejudice here because of the different rules on, on what evidence can come in and because of the non-unanimous jury in Kentucky and so forth. Yes. Do you think any of those procedural rules at the state level could ever amount to prejudice? Well, if, if, the, if the error had been objected to and not cured, which is not our case, I think there is an argument that the issue might be reserved to, to be argued on appeal from a final judgment, and if the, if the error is consequential, could lead to a reversal. That's, that is not this case. Well, but we take the case in the posture that there was an error when it wasn't 
Well, the error... The state court. The error, Justice O'Connor, was simply in removing at a time when there wasn't diversity jurisdiction. Right. It's just like this court's case, as I hope to discuss in a few minutes of Finn, where the identical error occurred. And yet the court said, as I'll explain, that the rule is, even though that error may have occurred, if jurisdiction exists at the time of judgment in the district court, that's not, there's no ground to... But, Mr. Geller, is it not true this case has an unusual feature? If I understand the facts correctly, if you removed very close to the one-year limit for removal in a diversity case, and if you had waited until Wayne was dismissed at the point at which you had complete diversity, it would have been too late for you to remove. So, but for the removal, the wrongful removal, when there was not complete diversity, you never could have gotten into the federal court. Well, that's true, but there are a number of responses. To begin with, Justice Ginsburg, we did remove prior to the one-year period. There's no Yes, but there was no diversity then. Well, I understand that. There may be a separate question when the case, once the case is in federal court whether it should have been remanded for lack of diversity, but there's no dispute that the one-year period was satisfied. Yes. And secondly, uh, that objection was never, was never made in the district court. The, the objection that was made was that there was not complete diversity. That was the that was only a well-taken objection. objection, and you recognize yes. that you must accept that for purposes yes. of the posture we're in. Yes. Uh, my point is simply that if you had waited until Wayne was dismissed from the action, it would have been too late for you to remove. Is that not correct? That is that is true. That is and true. The, one other point I was glad to hear you say in your argument is that you were not relying on the failure to take an interlocutory appeal well, from not, the refusal to remand. We're not arguing a waiver in that sense. We're not arguing that the Lewis's case would any, be any better today if he had tried to take an interlocutory appeal and 1292B certification had not been granted. What we do say, what a number of lower courts have said, is that these are the sorts of errors that should be resolved prior to trial. He had the opportunity, had one more step to take prior to trial in which, if it had been successful, would have gotten this case to But I find that an extraordinary argument if you're making that, because 1292B is an exception to the very firm final judgment rule. And people aren't penalized for failing. Um, it's to. not a question of penalizing anyone, Justice Ginsburg. We're simply saying that that was a remedy available to Lewis that he didn't pursue. Now, well, if, I, if, if, he, if 1292 was not something that any litigant must use, and it's my understanding that it is not, then, as Justice O'Connor pointed out, a timely objection was made, and that objection is preserved for well, appeal after final judgment. The only objection that was made in the motion to remand Justice Ginsburg was that there wasn't diversity jurisdiction. It's precisely like this court's Finn case, which I hope to discuss in a minute. And in Finn, this court held, and it's been the rule for 50 years, that even if there wasn't jurisdiction at the time the case was removed from state to federal court, if jurisdiction subsequently attaches during the trial, that's the end of the matter. Suppose in this case that um, the removal had been after one year. I suppose a hypothetical case. Mm -hmm. Removal after one year. And the district judge, for some reason, said, well, that statute is discretionary. He says he's just wrong and doesn't remove it. Can that, can that ever be cured? Well, first of all, that wouldn't be... But let's assume complete diversity at all times. Right. It would but be, statu just, it would be just, a statutory error. It would be in the nature of filing a suit after the statute of limitations had expired. If, it would have been, if, that's, if that objection had been preserved, and if the error had never been cured or could not be cured... It is something that perhaps would lead to a reversal on appeal. It's not something... Why should that lead to a reversal on appeal? It well, seems to me the equities there, I must give there, there's diversity at all times. Uh, well, <laughs> in your case, there's the, the judgment saved only because something happens toward the end. In that case, though, 
there would be a statutory error. And the question would be, is the statutory error something that should lead to a reversal on appeal? We don't have a statutory error here. The only error that's complained, that was complained of in the, in the motion to remand was the lack of diversity jurisdiction at the time the case was filed. No separate statutory well, violation. If, well, if, if, that, if, if, if that objection was well taken, and it, and it was, if, if, if it had been, uh, if, if the district judge had recognized all the circumstances in the case, uh, why isn't that statutory? And the diversity is statutory. Well, the, the, in, in the, large part. the only requirement of the removal statute that would be implicated is that there be diversity jurisdiction or some other ground of federal jurisdiction at the time the case is removed. But it's not a separate requirement of the, of the removal statute. It's a requirement of 1332. I would think that your argument is not that it's statutory versus non-statutory, but rather that it's, cur- that it's curable versus, uh, or rather that it's non-curable versus curable. Right. I would if you're late, you're late, and there's no way that it can ever be uh, uh, made up. Whereas if there's no diversity, uh, that can be uh, altered. Well, that's right. And there may be some statutory errors that are curable. And even if they're not curable, just going, there may be harmless errors. I mean, there are a number of reasons why you wouldn't want to reverse a federal judgment, even though some error may have occurred at some earlier part, uh, point in time. But we're not dealing with an error that's not curable. I know the case. I know the case isn't before us, but do you have a conclusion as to what the rule should be if the removal is, say, a day, a, a week after the one-year period is run? Yes. I, I guess our position would be that these sorts of errors should be the subject of a motion to remand in the district court, and that's where the plaintiff's remedy is. Presumably, in 99% of all cases, the district court will grant those motions if they deserve to be granted. If they are not granted, if... The opportunity to seek an interlocutory appeal is not taken. If the case then goes to judgment in federal court and it's a perfectly valid judgment in all other respects, I think there's a strong argument that that judgment should not be reversed because of that error. So what you're saying is that these matters basically ought to be left to the district courts? I think that these, uh, this may be a category of error in which the plaintiff's remedy, even if it's not cured, would be with the district judge, and you wouldn't want to reverse a federal judgment based on them. But I have to repeat again, because it seems to me so critical to this case, that we're dealing here with an error that, not a statutory error, and was completely cured and seems to us to be on all fours with... Well, Mr. Gallagher, what wasn't completely cured was that there was a removal at a time when there was no statutory right to a removal. What you're asking us, I think, if I get you right, is pretend that this case had been filed anew in the federal court before the trial. This was, once Wayne was dropped out, there was complete diversity. And I could understand an argument that says, take the case at that point. But I cannot understand an argument that says, 1292B, you didn't lose, use that, so you have to, so you're not losing out on something. Excuse me. I'm sorry. We're not relying, as I suggested earlier, on a failure to take a 1292B appeal here, except to suggest that, and answer Justice Kennedy's question, these are the sorts of errors that should be resolved prior to trial. This was one more way in which he could have resolved it prior to trial. He didn't pursue it. But but what you are assuming, it seems to me, and and might have said to Justice Ginsburg, is that although the statutory error in one sense exists forever, the only real interest that that is at stake here is an Article III jurisdictional interest. And if an Article III jurisdictional interest gets cured, uh, then the statutory error becomes de minimis, and given the the, the, the interests in economy and so on, uh, it isn't worth reversing. Isn't that the nub of what you're saying? That would be the nub of what we're saying if there was, in fact, a statutory error here, but there wasn't. I have to repeat. I'll try to come to this later on. The, 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 the removal petition was filed prior to the one-year period of, of, of the statute, so there wasn't the statutory error here. There was an error in removing a case when there wasn't complete diversity. That was the only error. The jurisdiction. And the error. district court 
if we could just feel away what should not be in the dispute and then argue from there. The case was removed at a time when there was no right to remove because there was no complete diversity. Right. There was a motion to remand, and that motion to remand was incorrectly denied because a non-diverse party was still in the case. If we could just that say that that's a given and go on from yeah. there. And that's precisely right, Justice Ginsburg, but it seems to me all of those things could have, could have been said and were said in the Finn case. This court's decision in American Fire and Casualty versus Finn involved precisely the same situation. With one exception, the, the one-year one year period for removal was not on the scene at the it time. It wasn't, but I'll say one last time and then we can. The, that one-year provision was not violated in this case. The removal petition was, was filed. Mr. Gallagher, I will say it one more yeah. time. Okay. If you had waited until it was proper to remove, you could not have removed because the one-year period would have run. If you had done it right, if you followed the statute and didn't try to remove until you had complete diversity, you could not have removed because that one And the difference in Finn is that one-year provision was not part of the law at the time of Finn. First of all, um, even assuming there was this, statu this distinct statutory error apart from the jurisdictional error, it's not an error that the plaintiff has ever alleged or preserved until his merits brief in this court. He didn't allege it in the Court of Appeals. He didn't allege it in the response to the rehearing petition in the Court of Appeals. He didn't allege it in his brief in opposition in this court. So the very first time we're hearing about this one-year provision is in the merits brief in this court now. So I assume we have really two arguments. One is this argument was never preserved. Was it raised in the brief in opposition to certiorari? No, no, it wasn't, Mr. Chief Justice. First time we see this one-year argument is in the merits brief in this court. We don't think it's preserved. But secondly, the one-year provision was put in the statute like a statute of limitations. It simply says you have to file the removal petition within a year. That, I think it's undisputed that that requirement was satisfied here. Take a case like Newman Green, which is a... Yes, it was satisfied here, and there's no doubt about yes, that. Yes, so there wasn't... But the, only, but the point I'm making is that if you had... Jeez, you've made if you had not removed at a time when there wasn't complete diversity, you could not have removed later. That's... I, and, and that's I part of that the, the scene, and I don't think it's genuinely arguable. Fine. I agree. In any event, this case, we think, is precisely like Finn, where the court stated a rule which had repeated more recently in Grubbs, that even if there was no federal jurisdiction at the time that a case was removed from state to federal court, the judgment should not be reversed on appeal if, in fact, federal jurisdiction was present at the time. You don't mean it's precisely like the Finn case. It's precisely like the way you interpret a sentence in the Finn well, opinion. except what happened in Finn just... And you should be relying on the cases that sentence cites, except they all went the other way. They all were cases where the defendant was not allowed well, to there are a lot take of, advantage of the, of the error. The rule announced in Finn, it's true that in Finn... The you're court you're relying on a, on, a, on a sentence in Finn, not the holding in Finn. Well, I believe we can debate whether it's the holding. It was the rule of law... Certainly not the holding because the case went the other way. Well, but what happened in Finn is that the court also said, of course, on remand, this problem can be cured by dismissing the non-diverse defendant. And that is, of course, precisely what happened on remand in Finn. The plaintiff made a motion to dismiss the non-diverse defendant. The Court of Appeals granted the motion, reinstated the verdict for the plaintiff, even though there was no diversity at the time that case had originally gotten into federal court, and reinstated the verdict for the plaintiff, and then this court denied certiorari. So what actually happened in Finn was that the rule that we're relying on here, which was announced by the court in Finn, was applied. 
and the the uh, the verdict the, the the judgment of the federal court was not thrown out. In fact, the uh, judgment for the plaintiff was sustained. Mr. Gallo, do you see a difference between a plaintiff who prevails in such a case, the plaintiff not having brought the case to the federal court, and the defendant? And the plaintiff was the one who was resisting removal, is that right? Because the plaintiff doesn't remove, the defendant does. Right. And when the defendant removes and the removal, there was no basis for the removal at the time. Isn't there a difference in the situation of the plaintiff who is, doesn't want to be in federal court but is stuck there because the defendant drags the plaintiff there? Say that plaintiff can hang on to the well, plaintiff's verdict, but that you're not going to allow a defendant who wrongfully removed to profit from that the, wrongful removal. The, the rule announced in Finn doesn't draw the distinction between the plaintiff or the defendant. And notions of consent or waiver or things like that seem to have no relevance, it seems to us, when the defect is a jurisdictional defect. The court either has jurisdiction or it doesn't. Now, in this respect, a very significant case, I think, is this court's decision in Newman Green, which is less than a decade old, uh, a decision that the, the plaintiff relegates to a footnote and says is no relevance, but it seems to me it's precisely in point in view of the, the, the thought that your, your Honor is expressing. Newman Green is a case in which the plaintiff filed suit in federal court alleging diversity of citizenship. There was, in fact, no diversity of citizenship. That case shouldn't have been in federal court. Nonetheless, the plaintiff recovered a large judgment. When the case got to the Court of Appeals, the jurisdictional error was discovered. And what happened, though, is not that the case was thrown out of federal court, but that the er error was remedied on appeal, and this court sanctioned that saying the non-diverse defendant could simply be dismissed from the case on appeal. And in fact, that's what happened. The judgment for the plaintiff was instated. And that was a case where the defendant didn't ask to be in federal court. He was erroneously dragged into federal court. And yet, a judgment for the plaintiff was sustained by, by, by dismissing the non-diverse defendant. So it seems to me that's a complete response to the suggestion that the jurisdictional rules should depend upon whether it's the plaintiff or the defendant that may have made the error or who. I, I don't see that because the plaintiff has a choice of forum. A plaintiff suing two defendants can drop one of them at any time and perfect the diversity. Isn't there a provision that says you can cure a jurisdictional defect even in the Court of Appeals? Well, this Court relied on Rule 21 of the Federal Rules. Well, is there not a provision in Title 28 to that effect that you can, I don't you can so. cure? The Court didn't cite any provision. It's relied on Rule 21. Well, I don't remember the number of it, but I think you will find that but there is such a provision. Well, um, in any event, it's the plaintiff. Isn't there this difference, Mr. Geller? The, in our system gives plaintiffs the initial choice of forum. And here is a plaintiff in our case who chose a state court, got dragged out of that state court, and into a federal court. There is a difference, I think. Well, it's true that the plaintiff has the initial choice of forum, but that doesn't trump every other rule. It's also true under the, under the statutes that the defendant, when he's sued in a state other than his own, and, and, and there's diversity of citizenship, has the right to remove that case to federal court. Now, as this case was actually tried, there was diversity of citizenship. The defendant was an out-of-state defendant, and therefore it was pro appropriate for this case to be tried in federal court. Uh, so in any event, our position is this case is in fact precisely like Finn. A case that's, that's been decide, was decided 50 years ago has been applied in dozens and dozens of Court of Appeals cases since and is stated without qualification in the leading treatises that even though there may not have been jurisdiction when the case was removed to federal court, if jurisdiction attaches subsequently prior to trial, 
then the judgment should not be reversed on appeal, even if, in fact, federal jurisdiction was not present at the time of trial, uh, at the time of removal. Now, that there's no question that that black letter rule was fully satisfied in this case. At the time of the six-day jury trial, and at the time judgment uh, was entered for Caterpillar, the case was plainly within the federal court's diversity jurisdiction. Mr. Geller, on your reasoning, it wouldn't have mattered even if there was no diversity jurisdiction during trial. So long as it had attached by the time of judgment, that would be enough. Is that correct? Well, the film talks about both. You know, I don't know what would happen in a situation where there was no diversity jurisdiction at the time of trial, but there was between, you know, jurisdiction attached between trial and judgment. Well, if it can be, if it can be cured after appeal, it would seem that I would suppose it would follow that if it was cured, let's say, after trial, but at some point prior to a remand on appeal, it would be enough. I think that's right, Justin. In sin itself, it was cured on remand to the Court of Appeals. So I think that's right. But but the rule announced in sin is that there has to be jurisdiction at the time of trial and there was in this case, which is our only point. So if, if, the, if, if you do take the position that so long as it's cured even after trial but before judgment, does it follow that any of the claims of, um, of harm here, if we should get to a harmful error analysis, really would be uh, beside the point? Yeah. The court has not engaged in any harm, harmful, harmful error analysis in any of And these it would cases. be inappropriate on your theory, yes. wouldn't it? Yes. That's right. Well, you admitted in response to my question that some errors could be prejudicial. Well, That's I, what I asked you. And was, that means that there are some situations that would permit the conducting of a harmless error analysis. Well, I don't think in this situation the court has ever done that. In Finn, it didn't ask, would the, would the case have come out differently in state court? In Newman Green, which is a, perhaps a better example, where the court didn't ask, should this, would the defendant have been, uh, pre, was the defendant prejudiced by being in district, federal district court? Because that was a case that should have been brought in state court. It didn't ask those questions. It was simply enough as a matter of judicial economy and administration. There was, an, uh, it was a perfectly fair federal judgment entered at a time when there was jurisdiction. And the court said we're simply not going to reverse that sort of a judgment, and, you know, because of an error that was cured, or error that could be cured at this at this stage. Mr. Gallo, wouldn't 28 U.S.C. 1653 take care of your Newman Green case, which you say is just like that one? Well, uh, that says defective allegations of jurisdiction. It's the plaintiff alleges jurisdiction in that case may be cured upon terms in trial or appellate court. So the plaintiff says, "Here's my allegation of jurisdiction. It was defective. I'm now amending it." That applies to 1653. To yeah. plaintiff's case, wouldn't apply to well, a the court. The court in Newman Green rejected reliance on Section 1653, is my recollection. Oh, you, I thought you told me that there was only the rule in the case and there was nothing in Title 28. Rule, but it, I said Rule 21. And that's right, because the court unanimously... 1653 applies only to allegations. And allegations. That's effective right. allegations right. of jurisdiction, right? Not right. defective yeah. jurisdiction. Exactly. That's what the court It was the basis for Justice Kennedy's dissent, as a matter of fact, in Newman Green, wasn't it? Well, the, the debate, as I recollect, in Newman Green between the majority and the dissent was... The dissent was, since Congress felt it necessary to explicitly provide for amending even a defective allegation of jurisdiction, it, it would seem clear that, that defective jurisdiction cannot be amended, there being no statute. That was the that. position of the dissent... In, in Newman Green. It was a pretty good position. It was an excellent dissent, Justice Scalia, but um, I believe seven justices uh, disagreed with it. Um, now, our position is that this court needn't go any further than that in resolving this case. The Sixth Circuit was plainly wrong, we believe, in reversing the judgment below for lack of subject matter jurisdiction because it's undisputed that diversity jurisdiction existed at the time of trial. 
and at the time of judgment, and existed on appeal, exists today in this case. This court should apply its settled precedence to reverse the Court of Appeals judgment and to send the case back for consideration of the rest of plaintiff's arguments on appeal. I just want to make one last point and then hopefully reserve the balance of my time uh, for rebuttal, just in, in response to Justice Ginsburg's comments. The plaintiff has made no effort in this court to defend the Sixth Circuit's decision, no effort at all to defend the Sixth Circuit's jurisdictional, ra- jurisdictional rationale, presumably discovering that it is inconsistent with Finn and Grubbs and Newman Green and that line of cases in this court. Instead, his brief conjures up a completely different statutory argument. I've tried to suggest in response to some of the questions, these arguments were never made below. No lower court has ever found any violation of the removal statute in this case. So we think even if there were merit to these statutory arguments, which there isn't, it's really far too late in the day for the, for the respondent to be bringing up new statutory arguments and asking the court to affirm on those grounds. This case is, we think, precisely governed by the thin line of cases. And if the court has no further questions, reserve the balance of my time. Very well, Mr. Geller. Uh, Mr. Staten, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, the petitioner today asked this court to find that removal was proper for subject matter jurisdiction did not exist at the time of removal and, in fact, did not exist until three years after the one-year time limitation for removal under 1446B had expired. As far as that latter point goes, when, when we granted certiorari in, in the case, we didn't know that that was an issue, and I doubt whether we would have granted certiorari to decide an issue that is so narrow. That is to say, if you remove within the, uh, within the, uh, the time period but that removal is invalid. Uh, can a later uh, remedying of the jurisdictional defect preserve the judgment? That's a very narrow question. How many cases are there going to be where, where this occurs? Uh, so you raise this new point now after the case is in front of us and are asking us to decide a very, very narrow case. I thought we were going to decide the much, the much broader case of whether when the removal, whether done before or after the, uh, the one-year limitation is applied, when that removal is wrong and the, and, and the trial court doesn't realize it and the case proceeds to judgment, the judgment is nonetheless to be sustained. But you're asking us to decide a very narrow case now, aren't you? Um, yes, Your Honor. Why didn't you do that when the petition was filed instead of now? Well, Your Honor, I guess the uh, practical matter, I don't do a whole lot of work in federal court and wasn't intimately aware of the removal statute. I think the... Uh, one-year limitation is uh, tied in with the argument that was raised. Are, are you familiar with our Rule 15, Mr. Staten? Yes, Your Honor. And the, that if you don't raise it in the brief in opposition, it will be deemed waived? It may be deemed waived? Yes, Your Honor. Well, what's your response to that? My response to that, Your Honor, if you're going to follow that argument, then the argument of the petitioner is also raised. The petitioner never raised its argument that's making here today under Grubbs and Finn until the petition for rehearing was filed in the Sixth Circuit. But, the, but the, did the court, of, the court of Appeals make any response other than just a denial? No, Your Honor. But the, the rule, rule 15 deals with our own treatment of a case, not with what the Court of Appeals may have said. That's correct. And uh, as, you, as you agree, I take it, uh, if you raise, don't raise something like that in a brief in opposition, we may be taking a case, as Justice Scalia says, which has some, something that will prevent us from reading, reaching the issue that the petitioner presents. And it's your obligation to point that out to us. That's correct, Your Honor. But this Court has also held in Hanson v. Dinkler that in cases such as, or in arguments such as the petitioner has made, that if it fails to make that argument in the court below, it also weighs that argument for this court. 
the removal statutes are clear that subject matter jurisdiction must be present at the time of removal. Today, I ask this court to adhere to its long history of strict statutory construction in the removal area. For over 100 years, this court has held that there must be subject matter jurisdiction at the time of removal. In addition, this court has consistently held that the removal statute is to be strictly construed. Mr. Staten, how far do you carry that? Suppose your client had won instead of lost in the district court, and then the defendant had said just what you're saying now. Ah, but there was never any subject matter jurisdiction, so we have to wipe it all out, remand the case to the state court. Would you be saying, yes, that's right, there was never any subject matter jurisdiction? Well, I think in that case, since the defendant has made the election to have the case removed to federal court, it would have waived its argument that the... But subject matter jurisdiction is something the court has to raise on its own motion. That's correct, Your Honor. Of course, 1447 states that if subject matter jurisdiction, if at any time before judgment subject matter jurisdiction is found not to exist, then it will be remanded. In this case, the argument that subject matter jurisdiction did not exist was raised prior to the time of judgment, so I think 1447 would predominate on that argument, Your Honor. But what on the assumption that the court had raised it? Would you be standing here saying, you're right, got to wipe it all out, send it back, try it in another court? Well, no, Your Honor. I believe if the defendant had elected to choose the form by removing it to federal court, then they would be bound by the district court judgment, Your Honor. Congress has repeatedly sought to restrict federal jurisdiction rather than expanding such. This is particularly exemplified in the present case where Congress in 1988 placed a one-year limitation under 1446B on removal of cases. The statute was enacted to avoid interference and disruption where significant progress had been made in the state case, as in this case. The statutes are clear as to jurisdiction. Under 1332, there must be diversity at the time of removal, and this court has held as far back as 1806 in Strawbridge that complete diversity is required. Under 1446, parties have 30 days to remove after receipt of a paper showing jurisdiction exists, but no more than one year after the suit is filed. In the present case, diversity jurisdiction did not exist until four years after the suit was filed. After removal, the respondent timely filed a motion to remand under 1447. Mr. Staten, this case seems to me almost an a fortiori case of Newman Green in this respect. Newman Green did not involve the removal provisions we're talking about here. And in the area of removal, Congress has displayed in the statutory scheme, it seems to me, the determination that bygones will be bygones. We don't want to appeal this removal decision. Isn't it the case that if the district court improperly denies removal and sends it back, appeal does not lie from that? That's correct, Your Honor. Doesn't that indicate that Congress wants this more than the normal suit that's involved in Newman Green to be an area where this matter is taken care of at the district court? Yeah, they'll get it wrong sometimes, but it's not an important enough matter that if they've gotten it wrong, we want to review it here. I don't agree, Your Honor, because in 1447, the court specifically stated that its subject matter jurisdiction is noted to be absent any time before final judgment, and the case shall be remanded, which I believe makes a mandatory requirement upon it. But that's of necessity. You cannot render a judgment when you have no jurisdiction. But assuming jurisdiction exists, 
It seems to me the scheme is one in which bygones are bygones. Well, I don't agree, Your Honor, because 1447 specifically states that the case shall be remanded if there is no subject matter jurisdiction, as happened in this case. But you're not suggesting that would happen even without a, without a motion to remand, are you? I mean, Grubbs certainly covers that, that in the absence of objection, uh, the, if there's jurisdiction at the time of judgment, uh, that's, that's the way that's sustained. That's correct, Your Honor. Of course, Grubbs is, has an important difference. I think Grubbs is consistent with 1447. In Grubbs, there was no objection. In fact, uh, no one noticed that there was not jurisdiction until after judgment. I believe that is consistent with 1447, since 1447 specifically states that prior to the time of final judgment, if the court notes that there is no subject matter jurisdiction, it shall be remanded. So you, d- you did make a prompt, timely motion to remand. That's the, correct, Your Honor. Within 30 days, I filed a motion to remand, and I also filed, although it's not provided for in the statute, an objection to removal. So, yes, I did file a timely motion to remand, Your Honor, as provided for in the statute. And it may be that Congress wanted cases remanded to the state court to be left there, but didn't have the same attitude about keeping a case in the federal court that shouldn't be there. I believe you may be correct, Your Honor. But if, if that is so, and it appears to be so, why should that be? In other words, what, would, what do you think the congressional policy might be to support that difference in treatment, depending on whether the remand motion is granted improperly or denied improperly? In my opinion, the, the Congress has recognized the, the rights of the states to determine their own matters. But, Congress has to recognize... Well, but this isn't a matter of the rights of states. It's a, it's a matter of a, a determination by a federal court. And, and why does one determination, uh, which is erroneous, get a different treatment from the converse determination, which is erroneous? I mean, what, what do you think the congressional policy is supporting that difference in treatment? I don't know if I understand your question completely. Well, if, if, the, if the remand motion uh, is, uh, is granted, there's no appeal. If the remand motion is denied and there's an error, there can be appeal. It might be a discretionary appeal immediately, uh, and, and uh, in any case, uh, if, uh, if the party who wishes to appeal feels the same way after judgment, there can be an appeal then, uh, at least uh, in theory. Why do you think that difference in treatment has been provided by the statutory scheme? Well, I believe it must be a, a balancing act of uh, Congress with regard to the uh, right of the federal judiciary versus the state judiciary, Your Honor. Um, and this, the uh, Congress has recognized by imposing the one-year limitation on removal that we want to avoid interfering with cases that have progressed in state courts or a substantial amount of work, as in this case. In this case, there had been an extensive amount of discovery in the state courts. Uh, we'd had uh, various hearings with the, with the uh, court. In fact, the case had proceeded, had proceeded far. No, but you can't even get an interlocutory appeal in, in the case, in, in the instance in which it's impro- the, the remand motion is improperly granted. That's correct. Don't, don't you think the, the distinction in one good argument might be for the, the disparity of treatment is that what Congress was really concerned about was, was the fear that a federal court might be exercising Article Three or, or be, be purporting to exercise jurisdiction when it had no Article Three diversity jurisdiction? Uh, and that that's the reason for the diversity. You might be correct, Your Honor. But if that is correct, then doesn't it follow that if that Article Three jurisdictional problem is cured before judgment, that there should not be a reversal on appeal uh, for the fact alone uh, that prior to judgment at some time, there was an Article Three problem? In other words, you, you lose on that. If that's the policy, don't you lose? Well, I think we have to go back to the statute itself, which specifically states that 
if there is no subject matter jurisdiction prior to judgment, the case shall be remanded. And, of course, as I've stated, this court has, has consistently held for over 100 years that the statutes are to be strictly construed. So I would submit that is the reason why Congress has, has elected to have this case remanded where there is no subject matter jurisdiction. Of course, I would also point out that the non-appealability is not limited to jurisdictional errors, but, is, but, is, but applies to uh, all errors which are made at trial, as, as normally a, and any error at trial merges with the final judgment in 1291. This court has, has consistently held through the years that one appeals from the final judgment rather than filing an interlocutory appeal, which this court has held is an exceptional remedy. The petitioner would have you believe that allowing the judgment to stand where the case is improperly removed was harmless error, but such is not correct. There were several advantages to the respondent being in state court versus federal. One of, one of the most important was that one of my most important pieces of evidence was excluded in federal court due to the differences of the federal rules and of evidence and interpretation of those about the Sixth Circuit versus Kentucky law. Mr. Staten, would you agree that uh, if the one-year one period had not run, and therefore you would presume, that, by, by the time they, there was complete diversity, and you would therefore presume that uh, the defendant would have made a new removal motion within the, uh, the uh, one-year period, that then the error would be harmless? Saying so if diversity had, had existed prior to the one-year limitation? Yeah. Yes, in that case, clearly there would have been. So the one-year uh, uh, problem in the case really goes to the harmless error argument. Um, to a large extent, Your Honor. Yeah. You then disagree with the Court of Appeals reasoning. Excuse me, Your Honor. Uh, I take it then you, you don't agree or support the reasoning used by the Court of Appeals to decide this case in your favor. Well, no, the Court of Appeals uh, ruled that there was no subject matter jurisdiction at the time of removal. So I agree that that was correct since there was no subject matter jurisdiction at the time of removal, then that could not be cured as the one at a later time. So you do agree with the Court of Appeals reasoning? Yes, I agree that they were correct in finding that the case should have been remanded due to the fact that there was no subject matter jurisdiction at time of removal. The petitioner argues that Newman Green versus Alfonso Lorraine would allow the judgment to stand under a harmless error theory, but that is not applicable here. First of all, Newman Green does not deal with, with removal. Newman Green deals with two specific areas. First, the question of 28 U.S.C. 1653, as has been noted today, provides that the Court of Appeals could amend, could amend effective allegations of jurisdiction but not defects in jurisdiction. And second, the Court of Appeals ruled that they could dis dismiss a dispensable party under Rule 21 rather than remanding to the district court for the district court to do so. So... In looking at Newman Green, it would be my position that, that Newman Green does not have any bearing upon the, the matter at bar as it has nothing to do with removal but, but merely addresses the interpretation of a, of a statute of Congress and, and a uh, rule of civil procedure. In, in summary, with regard to this argument, I would submit that, that the uh, rule of this court has been clear that the statutes of Congress are to be strictly interpreted. And I would ask this court today to, to strictly construe the statutes and ask that the judgment of the Sixth Circuit be affirmed and this matter be remanded to the state court. Thanks, Mr. Staten. Uh, Mr. Geller, you have four minutes remaining. Just two short things, Mr. Chief Justice. First, the suggestion has been made that 
Caterpillar didn't make this argument until its rehearing petition in the Court of Appeals. That's simply not true. Uh, apparently, during the oral argument in the Sixth Circuit, some question arose as to what would happen if the jurisdictional error was cured. And Caterpillar, on September 28, 1995, after the oral argument, but before the Sixth Circuit decided this case, sent up a post-argument letter which cited Grubbs, cited lower court cases like Abel versus Upjohn, which cited Finn. So all of these cases were before the Sixth Circuit, in addition to this argument being before the Sixth Circuit, prior to the Sixth Circuit's decision in this case. Um, Second, let me just say one last thing about this one-year provision, in addition to the fact that it wasn't violated here, and in addition to the fact that this argument's never been preserved, the purpose of the one-year provision, Congress put the one-year limit in the statute a few years ago in order to prevent the delays and disruptions that occur when a case is wrested out of one court system and put in another court system after a lot of work has been done on the case in the first court system. That's why the one-year provision is in there, to prevent diversity removals after a case has progressed quite a while in state court. Yet that's precisely the evil that would occur here if the plaintiff's argument prevailed, because it would mean that a case that's been essentially completed in federal court would have to start all over again from scratch in state court and be retried there. So the plaintiff's argument not only is it inconsistent with the language of the one-year provision since the removal occurred here prior to a year, it's plainly inconsistent with Congress's policy in putting the one-year provision in the statute to require a case that's gone to verdict in federal court to be tried again from scratch in state court, even though there was no error in the federal proceedings. So we would ask that the decision, the judgment of the Court of Appeals be reversed, and that the plaintiff uh, be allowed to raise whatever other arguments he had on appeal in the Sixth Circuit. Thank you. Very well, Mr. Geller. The case is submitted.